0: And welcome back to The Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me, as always, on our Tuesday podcasts now, Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. And, of course, he is the sage of Red State now, redstate.com, where he has this VIP column. And I, 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 I stole that one from Larry Elder. I, <laughs> I got to admit, Andrew, that one I whatever. stole from Larry. <laughs>
1: whatever, whatever. As, as long as it's not the rascal of Red State, that's fine. Ooh. Ooh. Don't, now don't, don't get any ideas, Morrissey. <laughs> How about the regent of red state? You're the prince yeah. of Twitter.
0: You're the regent of red state.
1: There we go. There yeah.
0: you go. Okay. So yeah. we've got this all figured the, out. The,
1: ru- the ruling regent. The, ru- the
0: ruling regent of red state. I don't think I could say that five times fast. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. prince of Twitter, the ruling regent of red state. I can I can, I can, can work with this. this no, is, this never mind.
1: <laughs> prince, Prince is good enough. Thanks. Well,
0: I mean, you could be called other things. I mean, Joe Biden just got done calling oh. Peter Doocy something uh, at 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 the press spray with the open mic, the un the unfortunate open mic. Um, I won't play it here, but basically, if you if you haven't already seen this, folks, uh, you can find it you can find it on Twitter and at the New York Post and lots of other fine uh, fine places. Uh, Peter Ducey asked uh, Joe Biden a question from the spray, which, generally speaking, presidents don't respond to anyway. And Joe Biden's mic was on. Apparently, nobody in the White House thought to turn it off, and you can hear him call Peter, Peter Ducey a stupid son of a bitch while he's sitting there. And uh, yeah, that's that's not a good look for for President Healer, right?
1: Yeah, uh, right. The Great Uniter. Yeah. And who wants the media to tell his story better? Right. Right. Also the same
0: guy who said that anybody who doesn't treat people with respect in this administration would get fired. I don't know if yeah. you remember that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, there's a long history of open mic gaffes. Uh, I remember uh, Joe Biden when they were uh, when Obama was signing the Affordable Health Care Act and he said this is a big effing deal. Uh, as he was hugging Obama and then um, uh, Bush called uh, uh, Adam Clymer, in New York Times political reporter on an open mic, uh, a certain portion of the anatomy and. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of those gaps I don't you know I don't know how they can forget that everything they say even Clinton going down a rope line. Remember he got caught and Obama going down and talking about those stupid people in Pennsylvania with the gun gun loving- Yeah, the bitter bitter clingers.
0: They were bitterly clinging bitter, to bitter the- Bitter
1: clingers, right. Yeah. And, he, and he ended up losing, he won Pennsylvania in the fall, but he ended up losing Pennsylvania primary to uh, Ms. Clinton. Yes, to, to Hillary, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that this is this
0: is hardly Joe Biden's biggest problem. I just think it's kind of an amusing look at um the crankiness of of Joe Biden. Something that I mean, this honestly, he's been this way his entire life. This isn't age. This is the same guy who used to like to get pugilistic with when people contradicted him on campaign stops. I mean, this happened in twenty either twenty nineteen or early twenty twenty in a um at a uh, uh, car manufacturing facility he got into an argument with somebody about um, the Second Amendment and looked like he was ready to square off on the guy a old clip from 1987 from his first presidential campaign he once he actually explicitly told the guy hey let's step outside and discuss this sort of thing you know it just it's that's yeah, Joe Biden
1: presidential material uh, well you know he's under a lot of pressure he's taken a lot of gas. He's trying to pretend he didn't i wrote about this in the column i know yep. we'll talk about uh, and what i said in the column was that he reminded me of my grandfather who had hardening of the arteries and uh one second he was a uh a nice old man whittling on the porch and the next second he was a junkyard doberman from the bronx uh, and it can switch uh, the circuits just like that, um, and I guess sometimes if you're a politician, you want people to be afraid of you. But if you're President of the United States, Commander in Chief, I think uh, you want people to respect you more than fear you. Well, I think domestically,
0: anyway, maybe you want, maybe you want, uh, maybe you want some of America's opponents to fear you. That doesn't seem to be working out too well either, well, though.
1: No, uh, and. Uh, you know that's one of the strong points that trump had in his foreign policy was that they weren't quite sure about him and you know unlike any other modern president he did get the north korean um leader to uh to meet a couple of times um and to pause his testing which is now resumed now that joe's uh, joe's back in a hypersonic missile he fired that goes 10 times the speed of sound yep 10 times the speed of sound you know i don't i don't think with uh, what there is today that you can uh, knock that sucker down
0: nope no i i don't think so either um getting back to your column here i i i found this amusing because it's, it's a great column if you're at red state redstate.com um uh you should check this out it's a vip it's a vip column like most of um andrew's submissions over there because it's it's worth the paywall uh to get to this and you talk about the um you talk about how it doesn't look like joe biden can course correct at this point in time and republicans are really crossing their fingers that he can't um yeah (laughs) yeah, well there's a lot of pouncing that's going to go on (laughs) in the media especially but i mean chuck even chuck todd and i don't want to say even chuck todd but i mean chuck todd was talking about this yesterday on meet the press and looking at the polls and saying, you know, this is shellacking territory. (laughs) We're in shellacking territory at this point in time. Uh, And it doesn't look like Joe Biden is doing much to, to deflect. That was the whole point of last week's press conference, right? Was to, was to reset the presidency. And in your column, you assess the success of the reset, uh, somewhat, um, somewhat along the lines of new Coke. Um, (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. New Coke. Uh, it, it was not very successful. Uh, and um, he showed his crankiness. Um, he showed his uh, tried to be folksy. And it was one of the things that I think has dawned on people and explains his job approval plunge is that he's garrulous and he talks a lot, which, you know, there's no, there's no crime in that. But you realize after a while that he's talking to fill up the space because I think he's afraid somebody's going to call him out and um, and they're going to find out that there's really nothing there there Uh, and uh, uh, all politicians will talk will overtalk sometimes to fill up space because they don't want another question. Uh, Joe does this no matter what and there was a story political had not or recently about uh, why he's always running late his first meetings and of the day start on time and then he's late for the second meeting and he feels guilty because he came late and so he stays to talk with people which makes him later for all the meetings down the hall down the hallway and the other meetings that follow and other meetings that follow remember at the nato meeting last summer he was two hours late two hours for a news conference yep uh, i think 20 minutes is standard biden time now but i, I mean that's just rude you know i worked as uh, some of the, uh, our listeners know i worked for the first bush presidential campaign and i traveled a lot with laura bush Uh, And both Bushes had a rule. You could never be late. How can you ask for someone's vote and make them wait to hear you ask Uh, and uh, I was with uh, Mrs. Bush in Council Bluffs one time we arrived. uh, The the Secret Service brought us up to the door of the for the event. um, Five minutes early and she said, No, they won't be ready and they'll be embarrassed. So we drove around several blocks until we were 15 seconds before the set time according to her watch and we came back to the front door and pulled up exactly on time and uh, i pointed this out to some of the reporters uh and they told me that bill bradley had been there at an event the previous night and he was over two hours late wow and expected people to wait in the cold so you know uh I guess you can look at his success, uh, which he didn't have.
0: Right. Right. And I, I mean, I think that this goes beyond just the normal annoyances of tardy presidents though. I mean, I think what you're seeing here, in fact, I know what you're seeing here is a, a collapse in confidence in, in Biden. I mean, you're looking, I mean, you take a look at the numbers at all of these polls. It doesn't matter where they're at now, where they come from now. They're all bad. It's just, where on the where in the trend you're at in each of these cycles? The Associated Press had a had a piece today, and I think this feeds into what you're talking about in your column that says, uh, according to their their latest release, um, and this was a poll from I think Thursday or Friday of last week, uh, Biden's only got a 60 percent or so job approval rating among Black voters. Now a Democrat should have 90 percent job approval that is a solid demographic that is a that is a block voting demographic that doesn't mean that 40 percent are going to vote for republicans but it does mean that you're losing a lot of enthusiasm among the among yeah. a, a demographic that you absolutely have to be able to turn out in the upcoming midterms and I, so they're you know the the well, sense is that they're wondering whether or not biden's losing black voters not that he's losing to the gop but he's certainly not keeping
1: him engaged well you know if you're not in favor of joe biden you can't be black
0: <laughs> yeah well yeah that that should have been the first hint right <laughs> i mean that really should have been the first hint but um I, this is i think and I, I think to a certain extent the 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 issues that you're talking about here are a failure to set expectations properly and a failure to stick with a formula that won for him in 2020 which was a centrist formula i'm going to focus on stuff we can do together i'm going to focus on unity i can talk across the aisle and i mean it took about a nanosecond after the inauguration for him to just completely go to the hard left and take the progressive agenda and run with it. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the exception of the infrastructure bill, he hasn't even have tried to to engage Republicans other than to no. say they won't vote for my stuff even though I'm, I'm telling them that they should. I mean, that's.
1: <laughs> well, they're, they're, obviously they're all racist. Right. Bull, Bull Connor and, and, and all the others. They, you know, I'm not sure if he bought the progressive rhetoric and agenda. Or if he just fell into it, or if he even knew yeah. what he was doing uh, mentally. Uh, but he has nowhere near the legislative clout he needs to ha- to drive that agenda, nowhere near five House votes. Uh, that's three, three, three votes change and he's loses the House. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. It's unbelievable that he, as a guy who's allegedly a savvy politician, I guess Delaware doesn't elect many savvy people, but as a savvy politician, that he can't tell after 36 years in the Senate and eight in the White oh well, now nine in the White House, um, that he can't tell that that slim margin, he doesn't even have a majority in the Senate, doesn't entitle him. It's not a mandate. And... Uh, uh so you know you need to look beyond this afternoon as president and he's not and we saw that in the afghanistan withdrawal nope don't get them all out and the general said no no you need 2500 for an evacuation nope get them all out now he's ordering americans out of uh, ukraine uh but they're on their own Let's talk about Ukraine. I mean, that's another topic.
0: I mean, certainly it's something that uh, you you know foreign policy is a big deal here, a big effing deal. To quote, our... big effing deal. Yeah, it's a big and effing deal. You know, deal. they
1: did they did t- the DNC did T-shirts uh, of that to try to try to cover their tracks. A big effing deal uh, when when Biden said that on on national TV. You
0: know, again, I mean you can almost say that there might be some charm in and that is sort of being authentic
1: uncle, uncle joe yeah
0: yeah sort of being yeah. uncle joe there's no charm in saying um it depends on whether russia uh, conducts a minor incursion into ukraine as to what it is that we're going to do i mean yes. this is this is very serious territory Absolutely, Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that they're now they're yanking people out of ukraine and Ukraine's pretty unhappy about that. The EU is saying it's not necessary. I mean, the EU's um, uh, foreign, uh, I guess you call it foreign minister or minister of foreign policy, I think is what they call it at the EU, uh, Josep Borrell was asked by the press um, on Monday morning, so the US is pulling a lot of its personnel and, and families out of Ukraine. When does the EU do this? He says, I don't know why they would be doing that. They, they haven't explained that to us but we're not pulling anybody out of there. There's no need to pull people out of Ukraine. And I, I am convinced that the White House got embarrassed by that minor incursion talk that Joe Biden was using and now wanna to act tough and are and this is part of an overreaction to try to yeah. show that the White House is on top of things. I mean, it's really the only explanation that you've got.
1: As he, as he overreacts to criticism, in the press conferences, to challenges of my questions, and as you point out, Ed, it it's it's a serious business. You know, in the late 40s, during the Truman administration, the American Secretary of State said something to Congress that appeared appeared to indicate that South Korea was outside the United States sphere of interest. Yep. Now remember. Korea was all Japanese until the end of, from 1905 until the end of World War II. Uh, and then it was divided at the end of the war. Uh, and so he appeared to indicate that uh, South Korea was outside the sphere. And that uh, prompted Kim Jong un's grandfather, the founder of North Korea, uh, to launch the Korean War, uh, thinking that the US didn't really care and for a few months it looked like he was gonna win it uh but then general macarthur took over and took care of business but uh it's these words are (laughs) have serious implications
0: right and it's it doesn't seem as though the white house is thinking strategically at all i mean it just seems that they're reactive to this um if you're looking strategically about our position in kiev then you don't pull personnel out of there especially since it's sort of i mean it's it's kind of ridiculous the reason why they pulled personnel out of kabul is because the taliban i mean they knew the taliban was going to attack them right they would seize them they would create hostages be it'd be 1979 all over again right
1: right right
0: but i mean let's just say for instance and i'm not saying that it's going to happen but let's just say vladimir putin orders a full-out invasion of Ukraine and tries to invest Kyiv, right? Which is by the way not anywhere near the lines that the Russians are at, where the ground troops are at anyway. They're at least a couple hundred miles from the Russian front to the uh you know, to the east and Belarus is to the north, but in order to march on Kyiv from Belarus, you'd have to go through Chernobyl. Now <laughs> I don't know maybe they'll do that, but uh that that seems to me to be an unlikely uh, an unlikely invasion point um but, but even if know, they
1: oh, go oh, ahead sorry go ahead no
0: i was gonna say even if they did do that andrew I, there's nothing to say that um, that embassy personnel from any country would be particularly at risk the russians aren't looking to start a war with the united states no. by attacking no. the embassy or anybody exactly. else's embassy.
1: exactly um you know over the weekend uh The British intelligence and uh, Ukrainians uh, leaked the information. They had a a memo or a paper uh, indicating that that Putin was going to try to uh, uh, have a coup in Ukraine. Now, you may think that's unlikely, but everything is up for sale in that part of the world. Right. Um, And that would save him an invasion, you know, he's like, Oh, well, Ukrainians have risen up and overthrown Zelensky. So what can I do but help them out? They're our neighbor nation. Uh, and that would, that would save him a lot of trouble. So, um, (laughs) it's not just invasion that we're talking about. It's subterfuge, subversion. I mean,
0: right. Right. But at any rate, in, in none of those cases would there be a particular risk to American diplomatic personnel or their families.
1: No, no, absolutely, yeah, right.
0: And that's the reason why, you know, Joseph Burrell was say was telling reporters on Monday morning, yeah, I, I don't have any explanation for the why the U.S. is doing this. I mean, they're not, coor- they're clearly not coordinating this with the EU. Yeah, I mean, it's all reaction, no strategy, all tactics, no strategy. And, and I think Putin's taken the measure of that and is acting accordingly um i mean it's,
1: well it's it's strange because uh biden was the one who said that he was going to work so closely with allies right and uh when he when he pulled out of Afghanistan he didn't tell anybody he didn't even tell the host country it's just all of a sudden at midnight pfft, all the americans are gone the lights went out and the sacking of the of the air base began yep in
0: bagram, bagram. yeah bagram yeah yeah, yeah i mean well, so here you've got the foreign policy president, right? Because this is supposed to have always been Joe Biden's, you know, top portfolio
1: was foreign policy.
0: And I think we understand now why Robert Gates had such a low opinion of
1: Joe Biden's foreign yeah. policy jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the quote from his book was that that Joe Biden has been wrong about almost every single foreign policy, major foreign policy issue for 40 years and gates is no partisan as you know he worked for both democrat and republican presidents and his book if you ever want to read his memoir is fascinating it's fascinating And one of the things he also pointed out about biden was biden's distrust of the military that biden was always whispering to obama you can't trust the pentagon you can't trust them so that might help explain why biden doesn't remember the name of the secretary of defense and why, when the generals said, No, sir, you need to keep 2500 troops in for an evacuation. Biden said no, no, I mean, how can you, somebody who wasn't in the service? Uh, and uh, I don't know, how, how can you, how can you s- tell the generals? Well, no, I don't think so. Because he's so blindly focused on ending the war by getting every single American troop out. Yep. And then he had to send back in three times as many for the evacuation and lost 13 of them into a suicide bomber and a couple hundred. Um, Afghans. Yep. And still, as you pointed out in the show a couple of weeks ago, 14,000 Americans still left there and 60,000 Afghan allies and their family. Many of whom are being hunted down one by one by the Taliban at the moment. Although Biden calls them the Taliban, the Taliban. Yeah, that was a, that was an Obama thing. The Taliban.
0: All right, let's um, let's shift our attention to the world of media, um, Andrew and <laughs> and Sarah Palin is um, yeah. well. She was supposed to she was supposed to begin a court case, a defamation case about the New York Times on Monday. But she ended up testing positive for COVID, so they've, they've kicked it out 10 days. Now, this is relating to a 2017 editorial in which the New York Times uh, said that it was, um, uh, I forget exactly how they put it, but basically blamed her for the um, Jared Lofner shooting of uh, Gabrielle Giffords and the deaths of six people in Tucson in 2011, even though that hypothesis had been thoroughly debunked by news media outlets everywhere, including the New York Times, (laughs) in the six six years in between those two points. Uh, She's suing them for defamation. Um, The New York Times, I mean, David Folkenflake actually had a pretty good piece on this saying, the problem is that the New York Times was dead wrong (laughs) and they're gonna have a tough time explaining um, how they got this so wrong when their own newspaper reported uh, that that theory was bunk. Yeah, they'd have
1: to, yeah, she'd have to show or her lawyers would have to show that it was irresponsible. Uh, and the times itself reporting that it wasn't true would seem to fit right in where the, uh, in those days it was, or was it? I'm not sure when they moved into their new building, but when I worked for them, the editorial department was on the 10th floor and the news department was on the third floor. And um, so you ascended. To the opinion people <laughs> on the elevator uh and uh, uh, uh they should have had the same sort of um attention to detail and truth uh now they did correct it and so they're claiming that that uh, that makes everything okay but um i so i think she has a case and uh if if uh if she wins, then that will um, uh, that will shake the roots of the media, especially if she wins against the the old gray lady. Yeah, you know,
0: according to the Sullivan decision, you have to if you're a public figure, you have to show what's called actual malice, which means that she has to demonstrate that it was reckless disregard or knowingly printing something right. that was false, which is a higher a higher level of of um, Proof demand than there is for private individuals who sue for defamation. Um, I think she's also including libel, so I think it's both libel and defamation.
1: The <clears throat> I, I think that well, not it, reading I mean, your it, own reporting, well, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not a I'm not. I guess you don't want to have juries. Juries should scare the media. I think it does, all,
0: I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because if, if you say to a regular person, the New York Times printed that it wasn't her her fault and the editorial department of the new york times said it was to me that appears
0: rather reckless well not only that but let's remember the context of this editorial too which i had actually kind of forgotten until i dug back into it this morning to do the the what i thought was going to be a curtain raiser on the trial and it turned out that the trial had to be postponed um the editorial in question was written the day after um The guy shot several, um, the the Bernie Sanders supporters shot several Republican congressmen at the uh, baseball field. And this is a guy who explicitly was looking for Republicans to shoot. He was out there looking for Republican congressmen. He was a Bernie Sanders reporter. Bernie Sanders, not reporter. He's a Bernie Sanders supporter. He's a a nutcase. I mean, I don't want to, you know, that doesn't tar Bernie Sanders. But the point was, was that was a politically motivated attack. Um, it was explicitly politically motivated. The guy wasn't a a nutcase in, he wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic in the way that Jared Loeffner was. And Jared Loeffner didn't have any political motivations. He was just sort of fixated on Giffords as a person. Um, tragically, I mean, there, there six other people died in that shooting, including a federal judge that um, was um, somebody that um, one of my family members worked with. Um, so, I mean, it was it, it, uh, utterly tragic, but it didn't have anything to do with Sarah Palin. And the purpose of doing this, and this is something that's already kind of come up in the deposition, which I think is gonna be a little difficult to talk around, is the purpose of doing that was to sort of have a, to present a balance (laughs) by saying, well, yeah, one side's nuts, but so's the other side. And so they deliberately mischaracterized what happened in 2011 as a way to play off the fact of the political motivation of the 2017 attack. I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's purposeful. That's, that's not just recklessly negligent. It's 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 malice malice to me. Yeah. If I'm a juror, I'm looking at that and saying, well, it certainly seems malicious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting and it will get a lot of attention because of her. Yep. I always found her to be fascinating. Uh, I must say uh, uh, I know a lot of people didn 't uh, don 't like her, but anybody that can overthrow a political the republican political machine in Alaska, I covered it back in the seventies uh, that 's like overthrowing the Chicago democratic machine. The Republican machine in Alaska was entrenched yep. And then and as an as a brand new rookie politician newcomer she got uh, and uh, she got riled up and overthrew murkowski the father of the current senator um uh, so um which and and the, the machine's power remains because you you may remember the last time murkowski got elected was uh it was on a write-in so uh, you know, think about that. You win a statewide election with write-in. You're not even on the ballot. So um, I don't know how they misspelled Murkowski, but I'll bet they <laughs> they counted them. I
0: bet you they did. All right. Well, we're almost out of time, Andrew, on the on this uh, podcast edition. But there's always time for the jokes of the week.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, there's, uh, they've been on vacation, these late night comics. So what? yeah so i've come back well like joe biden so i've come back with uh um uh i've got some some replay i call them replays they're uh conan replays a new study says kids have bad health effects from eating too much pizza the study used the pie chart which the children immediately tried to eat <laughs> um uh, let's see, uh, Kona, Another Conan one is that today is the first day of the Chinese new year of the dragon. So happy new year, or as they say in China, everybody back to work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and let's see we're back in the 2012 campaign primary campaign for Republicans. Conan said, Mitt Romney is releasing his 2010 and 2011 tax returns not to be outdone newt gingrich is releasing his 1988 1994 and 2005 wedding vows <laughs> yeah ouch yeah. Oh, yeah so uh one other one conan uh, another Conan one he said the nhl champion boston bruins visited the white house today as uh, uh as as champions uh, President Obama said he loves hockey as much as any black guy who grew up in Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that one. <laughs> Total politician, though. I mean, you gotta, oh, you, gotta yeah, respect, yeah. you gotta respect you gotta respect. He was, it was, the a, it was a White Sox fan, so he didn't go for the Cubs. I'll give him that. <laughs> well, there's only so many lines you can cross before you just lose yeah. all credibility, right? right, but, right. but he did so know how to throw those if sometime you go go to youtube and look up obama throwing a first pitch oh the uh, mom that's jeans a joke. the mom you know, jeans thing yeah. the mom jeans but uh the, the awkward it's just yeah. i i'd laugh
0: but i've told you the story about throwing out the first pitch right my story no. about throwing out the first pitch <laughs> no well you, you we've got a couple first we've got a minute or two uh so when i was living in I, I was working you know i was doing the northern alliance and the saint paul saints um wanted to have somebody go go over and throw the first pitch out from the from you know am 1280 of the Patriots so they asked me to do it and I said I haven't thrown a baseball correctly since I was a teenager I got a case of the yips someplace and I couldn't I never could figure out again how to throw the baseball properly they said well you know all you got to do is just go out there and lob it and I was thinking yeah that's gonna look great so I actually practiced on this for like two weeks I got myself oh. one of those Nets. And I was I was trying to I was trying to correct my throw and I just never could get it. So I went to the ballpark and I mean I was just petrified as to how this was going to turn out. (laughs) And we show up to the ballpark and this massive thunderstorm (laughs) breaks out breaks out. They have to cancel the game and they never I never had to go back and do it. So (laughs) it was I had practiced for two, three. I think I still have the mitt and the baseballs. I got myself a mitt. I got myself some baseballs. I was trying. I
1: think I still have them around someplace. You should have that that thunder sound effects when we're doing the thunder Uh, lightning round.
0: I I guess so. I guess so. All right. Oh, that's a good story. Well, on that note, Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, the ruling regent of (laughs) redstate.com. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again next week, sir.
1: Okay. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, everybody.
0: See you soon. Joining me now, an old friend of mine, um, I'm old, he's not, um, John Fund, uh, who is the co-author, along with Hans von Spakovsky, of Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. John, welcome to the uh, newly revamped Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back, I should say.
2: Well, welcome to Ed Morrissey striding across Texas <laughs> like like the... Uh, like the tough hombre blogger he is.
0: Well, I I tell you, I'm enjoying myself down here in Texas. Uh, it 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 feels like freedom down here, and uh, there's lots of reasons to be in Texas. They're all good, and um, I, I I know that uh, I know that you have uh, you you have
2: as uh, you're secretly a Texan in your heart, right, John? Uh, the 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 spirit of liberty breathes freely in Texas, and I'm with them.
0: Well, there you go, John Fund. Of course, again, um, the and I have author. relatives in Dallas as well. Oh well, there so, you go. Okay. So yeah, you're you're Texas um, by extension. You're Texan by extension. Exactly. So there you yeah. go. All right. So, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, broken elections. That's the title of John's book. Came out in November, uh, co-authored uh, with Hans von Spankowski, Our broken election. I know both of you guys write a tremendous amount on elections, election law, election policy. Both of you have been doing this for years and years and years. So you guys are truly experts in this field. Uh, what led you to, to put this in book form and why do it now?
2: Ed, the 2020 election uh, marked a real breaking point for a lot of people. Uh, after the election and after, you know, the horrible events of January 6th, we had a completely polarized country. And a year later, we still do think about this, uh, a third of Americans believe that Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election, not Donald Trump. You know, they blame Russia Gate, they blame right. uh, excessive media coverage of the uh, emails, they blame Jim Comey of the FBI, uh, whatever. A third of Americans believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election, not Joe Biden. So you have two thirds of Americans who believe that the winner of one of the last two elections wasn't legitimate. That is bad for our democracy, our republic, and I think that it's corrosive. Uh, The Supreme Court has said that if people lose confidence in the legitimacy of elections, voter turnout will go down and um, the, the country will be more polarized than ever. So I wanted to do a book that did one thing that I think will be valuable. There are a lot of people, on the left who have literally given up saying that there's any voter fraud. They used to claim, well, a mail-in balloting, you can have voter fraud, we should have protections that, but people don't show up at the polls and pretend to be someone they're not. But they've abandoned that. Now the left-wing's position is there is no voter fraud. It doesn't really happen, it's a unicorn. There are people, and some of them are allies, who believe the strangest things about the 2020 election, you know, computer hacking from China, uh, thermostats were were set that would uh, alter the elections right. from behind the screen. Uh, you know, let's put it this way: not everything you read on the internet is necessarily true. I know that will shock you. I'm stunned, I, uh, John. Yeah. I'm totally stunned by this.
0: Uh, except the and, stuff that you and I write on the internet, yeah, it's
2: totally. And, true. and yes, and and you know, some lawyers purporting to work for Donald Trump, like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and John Eastman, just went off the rails and said things that just weren't so. And as we know, Donald Trump will is prone to exaggerating certain things. Occasionally. So I believe that they needed to be a book that was completely and thoroughly documented that said there were real problems, real issues with the 2020 election. And not just fraud, but chaos, disorganization. I mean, one of the lines in our book is, the problem with our sloppy election systems is you can't tell where the incompetence ends and the fraud begins. Right. And... I really believe that the value of this book is you can take it to any friend, uh, independent voter, Democratic voter, and say, read this. It has 45 pages of footnotes. We have a problem with our elections. And regardless of who you think actually won the 2020 election, we need to fix these problems because we're going to have a close election again soon enough.
0: You know, and I think that that's something that we have seen, you know, over and over again here. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I, I was living in Minnesota for the last 24 years or so prior to. You've
2: you. seen
0: this problem up close.
2: <laughs> really Al Franken, close. phone your office.
0: <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing is that the stuff that I ended up doing this, this is a really long story. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. I started doing a uh, an investigative report on the recount. It wasn't about the election. It was about the recount. And it started, you know, after election day.
2: This and is the Franken race. This is the Franken race in two thousand. Al Franken versus Norm Coleman. He ended up supposedly winning by three hundred and seventeen votes.
0: After after first be, being behind by two hundred and, right. and, and change, right. um, and what I discovered in this, a couple things that I discovered in this, is that first off, Norm Coleman, you know Norm, right? Norm's, yes. Norm's a great guy. Norm is. But boy, I mean, boy, did he hire bad lawyers. He. Well. It, there's background to this, though, because two years earlier, there had been a recount in a in a house race in Minnesota 5, no, Minnesota 6, excuse me. Uh, Doug Kennedy was the incumbent, right. and I forget who he was running against. But, you know, the recount, there was one of those, let's sit around the camp, it was a real Minnesota sort of thing. Right? Let's sit around the campfire, let's just go through these things again and see how it turns out sort of thing. And both sides treated it as a collegial effort to just find out you know, what the, you know, what the, what the outcome was supposed to be. Two years later, though, Al Franken brings in, you know, these shark attorneys who are going to turn the same. Yeah. Mark Elias being one of them who gets a big prominent mention in in your book, our broken elections, how the left changed the way you vote. And uh, these guys turn it into a pitched battle. Now, I'm not saying it's illegal. They were they were operating within the law, but it was a whole different paradigm. And it took Norm Coleman's campaign and and lawyers maybe two or three days to catch up to this. And that was all <laughs> by that time the battle was lost. And I talked to people who were doing the recounts on both sides. Um, and they all said the same thing is that, you know, Norm Coleman came in there to, to be... Uh, a good guy, not that guy was the quote. We don't want to be that guy. Um and Al Franklin was very comfortable with coming <laughs> being that guy and getting, you know, ballots tossed out, uh, on the basis of just extraneous nonsense. And that's how they ended up fighting and winning this thing. So I wrote this big well, one they
2: piece. Were, you're absolutely right, but there were two other factors. Uh the first factor was they were very careful in um, the recounting of the especially the absentee ballots which as you know have to be signature verified and you know people have to make sure that the postmark is there and all that (laughs) they were very careful to demand different standards from counties run by democratic clerks especially minneapolis st paul and counties run by republican clerks the republican clerks tended to follow the letter of the law the democratic clerks tended to Be subject to pressure from Elias's lawyers, and because a lot of the people could be categorized as minority voters, they bent the rules. They basically let a lot of ballots in that wouldn't otherwise have met the strict standard. So if you do that enough, you're going to change votes. And in this case, all you had to do was change a few hundred. Secondly, as you know, Minnesota Majority, which was a public interest group in the state, did an after the after all the bodies were buried and after Franken was sworn in. They looked at the felon voters in the state. And these are people who had been served their time but hadn't gotten their civil rights restored so they weren't eligible to vote. They found there were 1,200 felon voters who had voted in the Senate election. Yep. And Fox News affiliate in Minneapolis went and did a survey of them. 90% voted for Franken. So if you take 90% of 1,200, that gives you 1,080 uh, votes that Franken got that he shouldn't have gotten, and he won by 317. You do the math... That pretty much proves Al Franken did not win that election. Yeah, I
0: mean, and, and believe me, I mean, I, I, I think Norm Coleman won that election. He lost the recount, and that's what the problem was.
2: And well, Mark Elias's view of recounts is very simple. The rule of the recount under Mark Elias is you count, you count, you count until your guy is ahead, and then you stop counting.
0: right. Yeah, famously, I mean, he's he doesn't hide that a bit. Uh, but but the the point of bringing this up is is sort of to underscore your point here in our broken elections and and the necessity of fixing these things is that most of this stuff happens. Most of the stuff that you're talking about here happens in elections all the time. Not the recount so much, but the but the other stuff. the the, re, the reason why we don't hear more about this is because most of the time the gaps on elections are so wide that it doesn't really. Matter; those things are nibbling at the edges. They don't change the outcomes. In Minnesota in two thousand eight, they changed the outcome, and, well, and as that's you the know,
2: problem. It really changed the outcome because it changed history. As you know, at um, the beginning of the year, after this is the year of Obama's victory, so they brought in some new Democratic senators. Yep. The beginning of the year, the Senate was fifty-nine Democrats, forty repub, forty thirty-nine Republicans, uh, Repu- thirty nine Republicans, and one vacancy. Uh, which would have been Al Franken's seat, because the seat was vacant for six months while they argued about the recount. Right. Well, Ed, they they passed Obamacare only after Franken was seated and gave them 60 votes, which gave them the filibuster-proof Senate, which meant Republicans couldn't stop debate. That meant we got Obamacare because of the Al Franken right. suspect victory. And if he if they hadn't gotten Obamacare, they would have had to have a much lower standard of uh, government intervention and health care history would be different. We wouldn't be talking about nearly the size of deficits and the problem people are having getting doctor's appointments in some cases that we are now.
0: That's exactly correct. And that's the reason why they matter. It's the reason why elections matter and why you need to make sure you get them right. And again, going back to our broken elections, how the left changed the way you vote. I, 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 I take your point very seriously here, which is that uh, even though a lot of the nonsense theories about the 2016 and the 2020 election were are just that they're nonsense. There's still a lot of problems that need to be fixed that can be fixed. And the very first thing that you can do for for election security is the first thing that Democrats want to get rid of in you know SB1 HR1 which is voter ID, which is a very very popular <laughs> security uh step. It's well, it's, but it's
2: especially popular with a lot of health bureaucrats who say that you have to show an ID to get in. To a restaurant, to get into you know anything. Now, we need photo ID Ed to go and do almost anything in this country, from applying for Medicare to um, traveling to uh, getting any kind of a check cashed. Just just um, to get
0: your prescriptions. I, I'll I'll tell you this. You can use this sure. maybe as an anecdote. I went to go pick up a prescription for my wife. It's uh it's a uh, you know it's a uh, controlled one of those schedule controlled things that she that she has as a prescription. They require me now to produce my identification and they actually scan it when I pick it up because of course they're concerned about people uh, buying these things and trafficking in them. But I mean, I couldn't even get that prescription without not just showing my ID, but having it scanned into the computers at the pharmacist. So yeah, I mean, we we, we do this all the time.
2: Well, you know, I uh, have been frustrated by the liberal opposition to voter ID for a long time um, because, you know, they use every kind of excuse. They claim that, you know, 25% of African-Americans lack a proper government ID. That is so patronizing and preposterous. It's not even worth discussing. Uh, And then they, then they argue that, well, you know, okay, maybe you need to show an ID to enter a federal building, but that's not a constitutional right. Uh, Voting is a constitutional right. And I say, excuse me, there are 50 states. To get married in all 50 states, whether it's a gay wedding, a straight wedding, or whatever it is, you have to show a photo ID to, to get married. That's a constitutional right. Right. You just said it was. You had a Supreme Court case on that. Well, if, it's a, if you require a photo ID for that, you require a photo ID for voting, and it makes perfect sense. You know, Andy Young, Jimmy Carter, and Martin Luther King III, um, and Bill Clinton, all ENDORSED SOMETHING CALLED THE FREEDOM CARD A FEW YEARS AGO, BECAUSE THEY WERE TRYING TO BREAK THE STALEMATE uh, OVER VOTER I.D. AND THEY SAID, LOOK, YOU KNOW, WE'RE NOT GOING TO GET INVOLVED AS TO WHO, YOU KNOW, WHICH STATE HAS A GOOD VOTER I.D. LAW OR WHICH STATE HAS A RESTRICTIVE VOTER I.D. LAW, BUT LET'S JUST AGREE ON THIS. LET'S TAKE SOCIAL SECURITY CARDS THAT EVERYONE IS ELIGIBLE FOR AND HAS A NUMBER. LET'S PUT A PHOTO ON IT THAT WOULD BE 10 CENTS AND LET'S USE THAT AS A BACKSTOP, A FINAL, YOU KNOW, photo I.D. THAT PEOPLE CAN USE TO vote." Sure, And it made perfect sense. They got conservative endorsement. I endorsed it. Uh, My co-author endorsed it. And they took the idea um, through a guy who used to be Pat Leahy's uh, policy director. He was the senator who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. They took the idea to the Obama White House, Ed, and they gave it to them. And Obama said, well, you know, Eric Holder will make that call for me. You go through the Justice Department. So they went to see Eric Holder and he said, well, I got to clear it with my people here and my outside policy advisors. So finally they heard nothing after months, they finally got an answer. We're not going to go forward with the idea because our official liaison to the African-American community, Al Sharpton, doesn't like the idea. (laughs) Well, it's good that they were in charge. (laughs) Well, Al Sharpton, you know, runs a political machine in New York and, you know, Al Sharpton is, you know, the epitome of the con artists, you know, scammer. And of course, Voter fraud is something that I'm sure he's not a stranger to. No, probably not. Um, I would. But here's my. Po- oh, yeah. Go ahead. Here's, here's my point. So we handed the left a compromise on this issue that had Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, um, Martin Luther King the Third, Andrew Young support. They all agreed that this should be called the Freedom Card. Because it would help a lot. If anybody didn't have a photo ID, they would be helped by this. You know, let's stop arguing in court and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on whether or not there should be voter ID. Let's get people a voter ID. They wouldn't take that. So, Ed, you have to ask the question. If they won't take such a reasonable compromise that actually solves the problem that they purport exists, what in the world are they opposing voter ID for? I think it's because something goes on behind the curtain that they know about and they don't want the rest of us to know about, it, and they want it to keep going. A couple other points from
0: the book. I don't want to. I don't want to reveal all the all the aspects of the book because I want people to go out and buy the book. Our broken elections. Um, How the left changed the way you vote by John Fund and uh, co-authored by Hans von Spankowski. Um, But uh, uh, two things come up in the book that I want to just touch on at least briefly. One is absentee ballots. Now I use absentee ballots because it's a little easier for me to do absentee than going to the polling place. Sometimes I'm traveling on election day, for instance.
2: Well, in Um, Texas, they have a very strong early voting system, which means you can go to a local government office, you know, 10 days before the election or so, and vote there. Uh, Many people find that just as convenient. And remember, if you use a mail-in ballot, you're giving up your secret ballot.
0: Right, right. Um, So I was doing this in Minnesota, of course, but uh, next year in Texas, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to, structure my structure my voting day but
2: uh check out early voting
0: but uh, i I will definitely check out early voting but absentee ballot fraud i I think this is a really interesting area we've seen some of this and not just absentee ballot it's the the absentee ballots itself but ballot harvesting that kind of comes from the absentee ballot process that is you talk about this as being the tool of choice for vote thieves we've actually seen this happen there was a house race um, i want to say in 2018 that yes. had to be re, had to be redone because of a ballot harvesting scandal
2: yes there was a political consultant in north carolina who normally vote, worked for democratic candidates but in 2018 the republican congressional candidate near charlotte hired the guy and uh, the guy basically forged a bunch of absentee ballots for the republican candidate uh, the republican candidate won by about 700 votes uh, the ballots were challenged and there was enough evidence he was been sloppy enough that they had to throw out the election. The guy was indicted along with his associates and they reran the election. A Republican won the, uh, another Republican candidate became the Republican nominee and won that seat. But it showed, you know, they will steal a congressional race, anyone. And this happened, you know, in the Republican uh, ranks. Right. So it's a problem. And anytime you have an absentee ballot, the following things can happen that don't happen if you vote at the polls someone can steal it from your mailbox, someone can intimidate you, your employer, your union, your spouse, um, you know, a local political machine. Uh, Someone can go door to door and improperly help help you fill it out the ballot, which is illegal. Uh, Someone can pick up your ballot as a part of a ballot harvesting effort. And let's say they pick up your ballot. And in talking to you, they think that you're voting for the person they don't want, they can simply lose your ballot, they won't deliver it. Uh, Or, they'll uh, steam it open and uh, find out how you voted right secondly um, nursing homes nursing yes. homes are filled with people some of them are or shall we say in a slow fade from life and they're not always you know completely compass metis think about this ed within the last couple decades two former democratic congressmen in pennsylvania these are people with reputations their former congressman, <coughs> they were both indicted for going into nursing homes and helping Alzheimer's patients fill out the ballot illegally. Right. Yep. Now, if two former congressmen will take that risk personally, who else is going to take that risk? Who else has done it? Yeah, that's so a great point. mail-in voting, in addition, has other problems. For example, Ed, if you wanted to um, send something valuable, let's say for some reason, you had to send something valuable would you really trust the u.s postal services first class mail system
0: no 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 i would i would want at least something that has tracking and the u.s postal service actually has uh you know more secure tracking systems uh, you know if nothing else certified mail but i mean you can do well oh, yeah, but, yeah but
2: not for regular first class mail they not for first
0: regular class. first class. no, no well, i mean I'm, I'm completely agreeing with you i mean it's not
2: the mail in balloting yeah. is perilous for the following reason the Postal Service, you know, remember, fewer and fewer people are writing letters. Fewer and fewer letters are being sent. The Postal Service is slipping in the deficit. And they admit that they've moved their standards to, for, you know, planned service deterioration. CBS News, Ed, did an experiment in the last election. This is not some right-wing website. This is CBS News, and NBC News duplicated it as well. They took a, out a post office box in Philadelphia they had 100 envelopes prepared that were the same size and weight as a mail-in ballot, and they sent it to that post office. After a week, they went to the post office. There was nothing in the mailbox, nothing. So they went to the counter. Where's our mail? Oh, you don't must not have any. So they finally went up the chain to the supervisor of the entire post office who came out. He looks at the camera and says, well, I guess I probably should take this seriously. This is network television. So he goes back. <laughs> they hear him. They hear him in the background behind the counter, you know, moving boxes around and stuff. And then they hear after about five minutes him shouting, oh, that's where they were. So <laughs> they brings out, then he brings out 47 envelopes. Well, first of all, they were glad to get the 47. But the question is, what happened to the other 53? Right. This has been a week. So it took, after three weeks, they went back. By that point, 97 envelopes had come in. But there are two questions. What if, what if someone had sent in their ballot eight or nine days before the election? It, it still wouldn't have arrived in time. Secondly, um, the 97 ballots. Ed, you know, lots of elections are decided by less than 3% of the vote.
0: Yeah, especially, especially, Ted you Cruise, know,
2: yeah. Ted Cruz's election in Texas was decided by less than 3% last time. So if 3% of the ballots could be missing, that could swing the entire election. You'd never know who won. It's exactly right. I mean, this is and
0: this is part of the reason why you you should make changes that build security into systems, not take security out of systems. And I
2: couldn't agree with you more. You know, after the 2000 election, the Bush v. Gore fiasco in Florida, we actually had a bipartisan bill pass Congress that passed a Democratic Senate and was signed into law by a Republican president. And the, the sponsor, Chris Dodd, who's one of Joe Biden's close friends, said the purpose of this law is to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat we're going to do both because we can do both at the same time in america well unfortunately the issue has become completely polarized there's no prospect of having a bipartisan bill s1 and hr1 those two bills in the congress that chuck schumer is going to try to force through next week in the senate uh they are completely partisan yep a complete federal takeover of all state election laws and they, don't, they didn't even make an attempt to modify them to even get one Republican supporter. There is not one Republican supporter of those bills.
0: They don't have 50 Democrats either. I mean, Joe Manchin says he won't do it without Republican buy-in. There's a, at least a, and a few Sinema others. Saying, yeah. And
2: Kristen Sinema said she won't break the filibuster in order to get that passed. So the point is the Democrats are just going pell-mell to cement a uh, a deterioration of our election integrity laws that already went into motion in 2020. And a lot of the book, Ed, is about the changes that COVID enabled with the election laws that fundamentally changed the way we vote. The the, the left immediately saw COVID as an opportunity. They immediately said, well, people will not be able to turn up in person and vote. We have to go to all-male elections as much as possible. AND WE HAVE TO HAVE EMERGENCY DECREES THAT STATE LEGISLATURES DON'T EVEN VOTE ON. AND MANY OF THESE WERE ISSUED BY HEALTH BUREAUCRATS, NOT not ELECTED OFFICIALS. WELL, IT TURNED OUT THAT THE SAME MONTH THAT COVID HIT, SOUTH KOREA HAD 27 MILLION PEOPLE VOTE IN THE ELECTION, ORDERLY, NO MAJOR INFECTIONS. WISCONSIN HAD A PRIMARY ELECTION. I THINK ONLY 15 PEOPLE IN THE WHOLE STATE CONTRACTED COVID. (laughs) SO IT WASN'T NECESSARY, BUT THE LEFT IS NOW TRYING TO KEEP ALL OF THOSE PROVISIONS and the sloppy verification of signatures that resulted from that tsunami of mail-in ballots—they're trying to keep all of that in place so that mail-in balloting not only becomes the norm, but becomes a very sloppy norm in which, as we discussed earlier, you can have a lot of um, play in the joints, at least, and a lot of uh, you know, cut shortcuts to getting you know ballots that are not valid into the system.
0: Right. Well. You can read more in the book Our Broken Elections How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. I'm not going to have John give you any more of the solutions cuz you got to read the book. Got to go buy the book. It's available right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh you can get it hard copy, you can get it on Kindle. Um uh you know, we want to make sure that people uh we, we, we get people out there to to And take it's a look also on Audible. It's uh, who who does the um who does the performance on Audible?
2: Unfortunately, it's neither Hans nor me. That 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 they've turned it over to professionals. But it's still a good listen. Uh, the other thing I would simply say—you've got a that, voice for this.
0: Wait a minute, wait, a minute. I got to stop right there. You've got a great voice for this. I'm surprised that they. I'm surprised they didn't have you do it.
2: Um, you know, the next time, next time, I'm hold. I'll hold out as part of the contract. But Ed, <laughs> the one thing I wanted to say is, uh, you know, even if you don't buy the book. Um, If you talk to someone and they claim there is no voter fraud, go to the Heritage Foundation's website, just type in, you know, voter fraud, and there'll be a database that comes up that'll list 1,500 individuals or groups of individuals that have been indicted and convicted of voter fraud in all 50 states in the last few years. And for anyone to say that voter fraud is not a problem in this country, uh, the answer is most of the time it isn't because most elections aren't close and there's not a great incentive to do it. But if people see an election in advance being close and they can plan for that and they realize that a few votes can make a difference, you know, human nature is human nature and they will sometimes Mm -hmm. fall prey to temptation. And we want, you know, we want the the old Ronald Reagan phrase, we trust but verify. And that's what our election should be all about.
0: That's exactly correct. John Fund, co-author of Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ed. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me is the blog father himself, Instapundit Glenn Reynolds, also a New York Post columnist these days, and of course over at pjmedia.com, my colleague actually in in the uh, town hall group. Glenn, so good to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on. Nice to be here. So you've been doing some great work over at the New York Post. I mean, you've got a weekly column going over there. Uh, every single column is is terrific. But I do want to talk about the most recent one uh, regarding Joe Biden and Russia, because this is unfortunately becoming even more acute after last week's presser. Uh, and now with what's going on in Ukraine, uh, you say that Biden acts much more like Putin's puppet than Trump ever did. I completely agree with you on this uh
3: but walk us through your
0: column
3: well in fact i opened the column with a quote from a 2017 piece by walter russell mead who's a pretty famous historian uh at bard and in that he was responding to claims that trump was a putin puppet and he was like well let's see if trump were a putin puppet what would he be doing uh he'd be doing everything he could to ban fracking He'd be trying to shut down pipelines that brought oil into the United States from Canada. Uh, he'd be uh, trying to soften th- relations with Iran. Uh, he'd be stepping down nuclear weapons Uh and, and, and basically, you know, my point at the time was, you know, who did these things before Obama, you know, who's not doing these things now, Trump. Uh, and now I just pointed out now Biden is doing all these things. I mean, he's done everything he can to limit fracking which is one of the reasons why gas prices are so high. Uh, He shut down the Keystone pipeline, uh, which would have brought ethical oil from Canada. Uh, Ethical oil is what they call oil that comes from places that aren't sleazy dictatorships or terrorist havens. Right. Uh, It would have been a huge boon, not only to the United States, but also to the Alberta region of Canada. Uh, And uh, the Canadians are actually pretty miffed about it and and rightly so. He's uh, not just made nice with Iran. I mean, they brought back the John Kerry agreement where Iran pretends not to develop nuclear weapons and we pretend to believe them Um, (laughs) when it comes to nuclear weapons. I mean, it's not only that he's pushing some dumb arms treaty. He's not even doing that. He's uh, canceling U.S. programs unilaterally, while the Russians and the Chinese are really moving into much more advanced nuclear weapons programs than they've had in the past. Uh, and of course, just basically everywhere, the policy is, um, if you just want to ask yourself, will it weaken the United States and will it strengthen the hand of Russia and China? Uh, if the answer is yes, Biden's probably doing it. Now, I'm not saying he's actually a Putin puppet, because honestly, I think Putin could hire more competent help, uh, but he might as well be. Well,
0: and when you take a look at that press conference that, that occurred on Wednesday of last week, and and the... Sort of nod to a minor incursion, and it t- kind of depends on how many units are crossing the border, sort of thing. I mean, this is sort of an amazing green light to Putin to uh, to do what he did in Donbass, or at least expand what he did in Donbass, which was to create these sort of proxy militias that were really just Russian regulars, go in and seize territory, foment uh, you know, foment some uh, unrest, claim to be acting on behalf of. Uh, uh, Russian uh, ethnic Russians and seizing territory in there. And I'm literally in in Crimea and uh, more or less, practically speaking in Donbass. And that's bad enough. And I mean, that happened in 2014 too. I mean, people have to remember that this didn't happen during Trump's Trump's time. We didn't have the pressure now about invading the rest of Ukraine that we do right now with with Putin. Um, That happened in 2014 with Obama and Biden. Now we got Biden back in there and we're seeing this all over again. And I don't think that's
3: coincidental. No, I don't think it is either. Um, I think Biden's blurt in his press conference about the minor incursion uh, is probably a reflection that he got a briefing that that was what was likely to happen. And people didn't think it would be worth a major U.S. response. And maybe it wouldn't be. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying we want to start World War III over Ukraine, but I certainly think we don't make things better by signaling to Putin that we're not going to do anything. Well, and this is a good point because there's
0: a lot of pushback and it's coming from, I would call the, the far wings on both sides of the aisle is that, well, the only alternative here that is to send american soldiers to die in ukraine and i mean that's we're not going to do that that's not the only alternative here Uh, i mean there's a whole lot of different things that you can do including cutting russia off from the swift program and, and international banking you can start producing oil and natural gas here in the united states and drive the prices down to um to undermine russia's economy there's all sorts of different other different things that you can do uh, short of sending troops into ukraine which i wouldn't do either i mean i'd it'd be foolish just not, not just militarily it would be foolish our lines of communication would be so long and so stretched out and russia's would be so short that you're just asking to get your ass kicked i mean but But this is not an A or B sort of situation. This is an A to Z
3: with all sorts of different alphabet letters in between. Right, Glenn? Yeah. One of the things that you want Putin to not be sure exactly what you're going to do. Right. You want him to be uncertain and nervous. Uh, If I were the Ukrainians, what I would have done already is infiltrated a bunch of uh, special forces people into Russia to uh, basically go wild against the gas and oil infrastructure the minute the invasion starts uh, and really bring the pressure home to Putin. I'm. Um, I'm told that's the strategy some of the Baltics have had for dealing with a potential Russian invasion. And the Ukrainians have good special forces. They did a lot of very good work when they were alongside us in Iraq. So they probably could, whether they will, I don't know Uh, what we'll do. I don't know either. And the trouble is, you know, we don't even, we literally don't even know who's in charge. I mean, it's clear that Biden's not in charge. Uh, People talk about Ron Klain being in charge, which is a disturbing thought. Uh, but we don't even really know who's pulling the strings in this. We don't know what their motivations are. Uh, and while I don't think Biden is a Biden couldn't be a Putin puppet because if he were, he wouldn't remember long enough for it to matter. Uh, but there may be other people in there who are influenced by the Russians, uh, which would be no great shock. Uh, a great right. chunk of FDR's administration after all was very influenced by the Russians, uh, and they see the value in that so but it's what we can't even tell it's not transparent we don't even know what their policy goals are really uh it does you know in in the midst of sort of an unprecedented first year presidential collapse a war kind of serves biden's interest uh, at least in the short term as a distraction uh if people are thinking about that they're not thinking about uh, how expensive gas is and you know those little i did that uh, Biden stickers on gas pumps have gotten so ubiquitous that even NPR had to notice them and do a story on it. And uh, uh, you know, I saw somebody on Facebook that I barely know saying that she drove, you know, from New York to Miami, and every time she stopped, she saw those on the gas pump. <laughs> so there's there's like a lot of grassroots sentiment here that they would love to distract people from, and a war is pretty good for that. Uh, and you know, it also distracts people how they botch COVID and everything else. Um, on the other hand what really took Biden from just looking crappy to looking disastrous was the Afghanistan debacle and a military debacle in Afghanistan is one thing, a military debacle in Europe is uh, a whole different order of magnitude. And here's my prediction. If Biden does anything, it will be a debacle.
0: Right. So maybe it's better that that he doesn't do anything because- Mark
3: Milley's still in charge. Uh, You know, last I saw he was going around policing pronouns, but he's still the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, In fact, pretty much everybody who botched Afghanistan kept their jobs and will be around to botch the next thing. And at this point, I think we can be pretty confident that that's what they'll do. So my own feeling is we should keep Putin guessing about our response. And I'm not saying there's nothing military that's worth doing, but definitely, uh, less is more from the standpoint of troops on the ground, because uh, I'm just not at all confident in the U.S. command structure not screwing it up. That's
0: a very good point. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Biden and, and the first year collapse, because I think that's pretty notable. It's not just Biden either. I mean, the, the Gallup poll about uh, Democratic voter support for Congress was really interesting. This was on Friday, and um, it showed that Democratic support for Congress or Democratic approval of Congress had, had fallen by more than half over the past year, primarily since the summer. So, again, you're dealing with Afghanistan as, as a potential inflection point, but also the collapse of the two bills that, um, that Biden and Schumer and Pelosi have been pushing through. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a president collapse during what should be a honeymoon period. But then again, I've never seen a president set expectations so impossibly high that failure was the only option. I mean, there's just, this is a guy who is a complete incompetent. And, and I think all of this
3: is unfolding, unfortunately, fairly predictably. So Lyndon Johnson came in he was with a landslide victory in 1964, huge majorities in the House and the Senate and was able to push through the great society and the civil rights act and so on, uh, because he just had so much political clout. Nonetheless, he was a one-termer, you know, after right. doing stuff that drastic, he was, he, and also botched a military botch in Vietnam. He was not able to run for a second term of his own. Uh, Biden, however, comes in barely squeaking by and barely holding a majority in the Senate. The narrowest House majority, I think, in history. First uh, time, at, first
0: time a first-term president's party has lost seats
3: in the House yes. uh, on his and, election. Yeah. And the conventional <clears throat> wisdom among politicians for the last 200 years uh, would be that in that situation, you kind of play small ball. You look for stuff you could do that even a lot of the opposition voters will approve of you try to build up some cred and look trustworthy and reliable going to the next elections. The Democrats instead. Just chose to act as if they had a huge supermajority. And to cram through as much as they could. And I've I've actually pondered why they might do this. One is that they know something I don't. And they feel like they've got a narrow window to get this stuff through and they've got to get it through now or it's never going to happen. And it's just worth burning all their credibility and all their resources and everything else to try to get this through before the window slams shut. I don't know what that window would be, but uh, the other possibility is that they're just idiots and there's certainly plenty of evidence for that. Uh, as, uh, you know, as Ed Driscoll likes to say, uh, they they've outsourced most of their planning to journalists on Twitter and that has not worked well for them. Uh, journalists, of course, are. Well, what is it it Ben Rhodes said? 27-year-olds who literally know nothing. Right. Uh, So letting them guide you doesn't work. And Twitter, of course, itself is a bubble of people who don't reflect the country as a whole. Uh, And in fact, their stuff is quite unpopular with most Democrats. It's unpopular with the minority voters who are usually safe for them, uh, but who don't like woke politics, who, you know, aren't really into socialism and all of this stuff. Uh, And it has just really... uh, created for them and you know you talked about those bills failing to get through. I know the wisdom among the Democratic leadership was oh if the bills got through we'd have a win and our base would love us and we'd do better. I think those bills were terrible bills and I don't think passing them would have made anybody happier.
0: No, I don't think they would have stood up either, especially the, um, you know, Build Back Better. I don't know that there was anything specifically unconstitutional in Build Back Better, probably some stuff on the margins. But the the basis for that election federalizing bill that they were trying to push through and trying to demolish the filibuster with, most of that probably would have been overturned. Uh, You know, the federal constraints on state laws regarding voter ID, for instance, I, I would almost guarantee you that that would have been thrown out of court. So really, I mean, this was a fight. This was a losing fight over a loser of a bill. And they knew for months that it wasn't going to work. They actually had tried this in May, dropped it because it wasn't going to work, which was the right thing to do back then. Um, And then brought it back up again, even though they they knew it was going to die after they got embarrassed by the collapse of the Build Back Better negotiations. And that was entirely among Democrats. Um, I I mean, I don't even get this as a, as a, I don't know, like a, a moral demonstration sort of vote. I mean, that's what Pelosi can do in the house. When you get to the Senate, (laughs) you're going to have to start dealing with other, other issues. And, And Pelosi can barely do that these days in the house. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, speaking of Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi had a, had a very, um, uh, a very core principle that she would never put a a, a bill or, or a, a vote on the floor of the house without without knowing that it was going to pass. And for the most part, knowing it would be, it would pass with votes from her own party. Um, Mitch McConnell is a little looser than that. He's willing to do a little bit more when he's majority leader, he's willing to do things with some more bipartisanship and put stuff on the floor. But I mean, Chuck Schumer, I, I don't get that at all. It's the leadership in this in this party seems to have just thrown all in with the radicals and are sort of like the Joker, uh, you know, near the end of the dark night where you've got the big pile of money and they set it on fire. And it's just, you know, what, what was it? Michael Caine said some men just want to watch the world burn. I mean, that just seems like that's
3: Biden and Schumer these days. Well, you know, Schumer's supposed to be smart and he certainly has been canny in other circumstances. And Once again, there is a quality of desperation to what the Democrats have been doing that I don't grasp, but I feel like I'm missing something important by not grasping what makes them so desperate now. You know, Traditionally, the left sort of is happy to be incremental and say, well, we'll win something this year, we'll win something next year, we'll nibble our way to what we want without ever getting the great mass of voters upset. And this time they've chosen exactly the opposite approach. And again, what makes it so urgent to do it now? Right. The other thing, usually, though, I agree with you on that.
0: Usually their proposals at least speak to some sort of voter discontent, right? None of their stuff this time does. I mean, this is all stuff that is zero priority for voters. And poll after poll after poll shows that people don't really care about the social engineering that they're trying to push through in the reconciliation bill. And voting... Voting reform, voting law reform, doesn't even show up as a blip on voter um,
3: uh, on on voter priorities. And so, well, most of that stuff's unpopular. Voters favor voter ID, right? You know, they favor only letting citizens vote. I mean, uh, the Democratic <laughs> stuff is, is affirmatively unpopular. Uh, so why why you go all in on that? I don't know at all. Uh, and you know, sure, I can see why they'd like to win on it. I, I can see why they'd like to have. A regime where basically they can gen up as many votes as they need but the thought that voters were going to like that idea it just seems absurd to me yeah no i agree with you um and
0: the only thing that i can think of in terms of strategy is that they see it they see it as sort of the obamacare strategy where you slam through something that's not terribly popular and you make it so difficult to undo that you've changed the status quo even if you've even if you lose the next couple of elections you've changed the status quo to a certain extent that can't simply can't be uh you can't return to the status quo ante and and i think that that's really what they wanted from build back better i think that's really what they wanted from this sb1 or sr1 uh the voting uh law reform stuff that they're trying to push through is that they're not—they're not even pretending to care about voter priorities. This is really all about what they want to do, and I think voters are catching on to that. You can get away with that in 2010 when you had just about enough votes to get it through, barely. But there's—they they didn't have anything near the number of votes here. I mean, just the whole thing makes no sense whatsoever in terms of a party that's looking
3: for some sort of long-term entrenchment in the electorate. Like I say, the short-term thinking here troubles me a little bit because I do just keep thinking I'm missing some reason they have for thinking that way, and, and I can't imagine any reason they have for acting that way that would be good. <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah, you know, I mean it's all bad. Um, and you know, one thing I will say for people on the right is you talk about getting in a change that can't be reversed. We are going to see, and it's been known for a long time, we're going to see it at some point in the distant future. Now it's the nonsense. We're going to see essentially a financial collapse of the U.S. government, yeah. the debts, you know, unsustainable, growing so fast. The reason why interest rates are so low is because we couldn't afford to pay even sort of historic interest rates on the debt now. And there's going to come a crisis. And at that point, people on the right need to be prepared to strike and strike hard and eliminate whole government departments and just uh, enact structural change as part of that. Uh, that will, in fact, undo 50 plus years of democratic policies and really change the political landscape afterward. And I don't know if there are enough people on the right willing to be that drastic. We have too many bowtie conservatives who, uh, you know, are are at most up for incremental change.
0: Well, that will be something for a 2024 campaign, because you can't do that without having the White House. And you really need at least majority, as, as we're learning right now, you need enough uh, enough of a majority in both chambers of Congress in order to get past that type of um, uh, reluctance. Um, and I'm not saying that Joe Manchin was unreasonably reluctant. I think he was extremely reasonably reluctant. I think he's seeing the, the radicalization of his party. And 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 dug his heels in uh, accordingly, and I think it was a smart move. And I think Kirsten Cinema did the same thing. We're you know we're we're coming up to the end of the time here. Uh, I'll I'll ask you this one question uh, to to wrap things up. When do you think Joe Manchin uh, crosses the aisle and becomes a Republican? Because to me, I know people say, oh, he'll never do it. He'll never do it. Selena Zito, whose opinion I I respect and um and you know just personally, I just adore Selena. She's terrific. Insists that Joe Manchin will never do it. She's talked with him, so she's got a better read on this. But I just don't see, with the incentives and disincentives arrayed in front of Joe Manchin, how he stays a Democrat and stays in politics. So I'm, well, you, gonna, know, you know, I, I think it's this year. I think at some point this year he flips. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear what your,
3: what your thoughts are on this. So I have some friends uh, who are like old, still old timey Southern Democrats who, honestly, whose views on the issues of the culture should make them Republicans, but who out of just sheer tribal loyalty remain cussedly members of the Democratic Party, Uh, and he may be somebody like that. uh, But if you assume he's a rational interest maximizer, uh, he should cut a deal, and this goes for Sinema too, of course, if she thinks of doing it, uh, he should cut a deal uh, now because once the elections retake, the the Republicans retake the Senate as they're expected to do, at least, later this year, uh, his bargaining power is way down, right? And the best thing for him to do is to cut a deal with Mitch McConnell. And honestly, it might be smart for he and Senema to go and cut a joint deal together. Uh, they might be able to extract more and keep somebody from playing them off against each other. Uh, but if they do that, regardless, you know, they we're coming up on the period where their maximum value to the Republicans uh, will let them get some kind of a deal on seniority and other stuff, you know, when people switch parties like that in the Senate, they try to cut a deal that says, I'll, I'll keep my seniority or, you know, I'll get some plumb committee assignments or whatever, uh, in exchange for switching over. Uh, and maybe he won't go Republican, maybe he'll just uh, pull a Bernie Sanders and call himself an independent, but caucus with the Republicans, which is just as good. Uh, and that may, you know, he may find that uh, satisfying enough. Um, honestly given the way that he and Senator have been shat on by their fellow democrats um you know if it were me i probably already would have done it just as an up yours but uh politicians are generally uh more considered than that
0: yes i agree all right glenn what's coming up next for you over at uh instapundit or new york post well, for that matter
3: <laughs> i have to look at my schedule, post to say um what's next well you know one thing i'm working on this is not really an insta pundit. Well, it sort of is. I've been touting on insta pundit for years, this idea of what I call a welcome wagon project for people who move to red states from blue states to basically explain to them, here's why the state you move from suck. Please don't support policies that will make the new place you move to suck like the place you escape. Uh, and I, you know, I kept saying, someone should do this, someone should do this, someone should do this. About the 30th time I said that I was like, maybe I should do this. Uh, and you know, it's not really, I'm a blogger and a law professor. It's not like at the core of my wheelhouse, but what I did was I reached out to the folks at fee, the foundation on economic education, because I like their work and it's kind of there. And we talked and, and, and now there's a project underway. And I will confess they're doing virtually all the work on it. I'm, I'm in the loop, but, uh, and it's called the fresh start States initiative, which is exactly, it's going to start out with a test operation in the Nashville and Atlanta areas, and then expand outward. Uh, once everything's refined. And basically people who move there from New York, California, New Jersey, Illinois, places like that, uh, will get a nice little packet in the mail that says, welcome to Nashville or wherever. And uh, here's some things about your community. And here's some things you should know about why the things that attract most people to this place are the way they are. You know, for example, in Tennessee, we have no income tax and you know we like that. And we have v- various things that explain saying, you know, if you want things to stay the way they were where they attracted you here, you should probably continue to support the policies that made the place attractive to begin with. And, you know, how much good? Well, it'll do some good. Uh, you know, sure. blog commenters always rain on it because they rain on everything. Uh, but, um, you know, is it a magic one? No. But, you know, you, all politics is a game of the margins. And if you uh, make people who move 10% less blue, that's a big deal. I agree. And
0: as somebody who just moved in the last six months from a blue state to a red state for a variety of reasons, it wasn't uh, it was politics wasn't really part of it. But economics certainly was a big part of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I can tell you here in Texas, they're very sensitive to people coming in from blue states and trying to blew up Texas and uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 think that this is a, a great project for you, and I'm just looking forward at instapundit.com to, to read more about it as you and Fee um, uh, roll that out. Glenn Reynolds, thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you.